five years is simply this. America was built by and for the white Christian people of this nation. Muslim is not a religion partner, it's an ideology. Author and scholar Pankaj Mishra, in his book from 2017, describes our current time, our cultural moment, as an age of rage. Now that notion, or that idea, or that title, it's not novel. Most of us can see it, we watch it play out on television, or on Facebook, or in our families, and maybe more than anything else, most of us at some level can feel it. Like a low but visceral hum just under the surface of things. And because it is so evident, because this feeling seems to transcend place in life or moment in life or economic status or standing, people are trying to figure out why. Why is it an angry age? To get at that answer, I hear pundits and politicians talking about tribalism or partisanship. I hear debates about policy and difficult conversations about race and gender. But even in all of that, I still don't think that we have gotten to the question, why? Why does our world feel angrier? We can talk about tribalism, but why is there tribalism? Or we can talk about resentment, but why is there resentment? Or we can talk about neo-Nazis marching in the street, but why? And maybe as you listen to this, you're tired of political conversation or conversations about what's happening around the world. And that's fair. But I don't think resentment is only found within our political conversations. In fact, I think the place we see it first, the place we see it most powerfully, is in the places we thought were safe, in the places where we thought we were family, spaces like church or friend groups, in our marriages and our homes. And so, at the end of the day, this isn't a political conversation, it's a human conversation.
My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 1 of The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Dei Community and the Gospel Collective in Salt Lake City, Utah. The People's Theology is a podcast dedicated to exploring culture and theology like it matters because, well, it does. In today's episode, we are exploring a feeling. Trying to unpack and talk through and understand this sense of resentment or anger that is under the surface and beginning to erupt in different moments in our world. What is it? Where did it come from? Why is it? And maybe most importantly of all, what do we do with it? And actually, for the first few episodes of season two, we will be exploring feelings. Feelings like anger and fear, dissonance, disappointment. Feelings that maybe we haven't named them, but pervade our culture. Have a conversation that helps us understand those things, and hopefully in understanding those things, we will understand our world, ourselves, and our role within it better. One of the most famous moments in the Bible is the story of the Exodus. Maybe you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, or you saw the more recent movie with Christian Bale. But we all kind of know the general gist of the story. Israel is in slavery in Egypt. They've been there for a long time. And God, the God of the Old Testament Bible, shows up powerfully on their behalf to rescue them from enslavement and lead them into the wilderness, which leads to the famous moment of the crossing of the Red Sea, and it leads to the famous moment of the Ten Commandments being given to the people of Israel. But what is less familiar to us are the moments before the Exodus. What happens to require rescue? When did Israel become slaves? Why does God have to show up on their behalf? Why is the situation so dire? Now, the story in the Old Testament, as told in the book of Exodus, answers that question. In chapter 1, verses 8, it reads, and quote, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them and afflicted them with a heavy burden. End quote. Depending on how you date the Exodus, there is a chance that in this moment, we are witnessing a massive political shift. Some scholars argue that Abraham's family, when they entered Egypt for the very first time, which is what the reference to Joseph is talking about, they did so during the reign of the Hyksos dynasty, which is a foreign power who'd taken over Egypt and then were eventually overthrown and replaced by a true Egyptian dynasty. Now, we know that happened, 
And if it happened while the Israelites were within the walls of Egypt, it does not take much creativity to imagine how perception and politics changed. The once welcomed and rewarded family now represents the dangers of a foreign power. What if Israel, this growing tribe, chooses to rise up and usurp the throne? What if they were to ally themselves with an enemy? What if they turn? Fear is a powerful thing. Fear and idolatry are dangerous things. Together, they turn us inward, generating desperate gambles for preservation. Israel wasn't Egypt's enemy. They never were. But Egypt was afraid, angry, and searching for a way to deal with their own panic. Now, the trickiest part of all of this is that fear, it works on a subconscious level, twisting our rationale in secret. Fear and idolatry, they blind us. And in the dark, every noise and creeping thing sounds like a threat. So we strike out, trying to hit targets that were literally never there. What happens when we are unable or unwilling to address the source of anger and fear? Philosopher and literary critic René Girard said, we search for a scapegoat. Quote, everywhere and always, when human beings either cannot or will not take their anger out on the thing that has caused it, they unconsciously search for substitutes. And more often than not, they find them, end quote. We want a target for our fear and anger. Someone or something to blame, a scapegoat to sacrifice on the altar of worry. And like Renee says, it is not that hard to find one. Now, fear makes sense of a lot of things. But just like in our current cultural moment, you have to ask a secondary question, which is, why are we afraid? What's underneath the fear that is pervasive, that's leading to scapegoating, that leads to violence? What is under the fear? And Gerard says that when you peel back the layers of fear and panic and get to the very bottom of even the most violent actions, you find desire. At some level, you could say all human actions are driven by desire. I work because I make enough money in order to afford a certain type of lifestyle. But what happens when we are denied the object of our desire? When what we want feels elusive and out of reach, no matter how hard we try, does the desire that we have dissipate? Do we move on? Rarely. Instead, more often than not, our unfulfilled desire begins to produce in us dissonance. And if unwatched, dissonance can lead to resentment. Resentment towards the people who have what we want, resentment towards a system that we believe has failed to reward us our efforts or give us what we desire, and 
resentment towards the people we think infringe on our ability to fulfill our desires. When our desires are attainable, the violence of our resentment might be limited or even strategic, like ancient tribes fighting over food and water. The problem is that once our basic needs are met, our desires evolve into ethereal promises. Think about a desire like the pursuit of happiness. There's no definable end to that desire, no attainable objective, just an impossible feeling that leads to a compounding sense of impotence. It's like a pressure cooker. The pressure of desire and contempt and resentment build. And for a time, the lid is on tight, but as we know, that only compounds the pressure. It all has to go somewhere. And more likely than not, it'll lead to an explosion. Desire that has an attainable objective can produce violence. But desire compounded by impotence produces a categorically different kind of violence. What philosopher Walter Benjamin calls divine violence. This is violence without any discernible end other than to assert itself. It is random, chaotic, and excessive. It does not establish a law, prevent injustice, or even attain its own desired objective. Instead, as Nietzsche says, it is, quote, an expression of impotence converted into self-destructive rage, end quote. This is what happens when rioters destroy property and loot stores in their own neighborhoods, when spouses throw their favorite vases in the middle of a fight, or when kids smash their toys in frustration. It's what happens when people feel left behind, beat down, and unheard for so long that in a random explosion of rage, they assert themselves. In 1730 Paris, there is a group of painting apprentices on the verge of this kind of violence. The apprentices had been forced to live and work in terrible environments. Historian Robert Darton writes that the apprentices, quote, slept in filthy freezing rooms, rose before dawn, ran errands all day while dodging insults from journeymen and abuses from the master. They received nothing but slop to eat. They found the food especially galling. Instead of dining at the master's table, they had to eat scraps from his plate in the kitchen. Worse still, the cook secretly sold the leftovers and gave the boys cat food. Old, rotten bits of meat they could not stomach and so passed on to the cats who still refused it. End quote. So boys, who were seeking a better life through skilled trade, found their humanity degraded and their desires frustrated. Every morning they woke to the institution they had participated in, its inability to fulfill their hopes and desires. Overworked, abused, and underfed day after day with nowhere to go and nothing to do. 
leaves you feeling boxed in, trapped, and with nowhere to go. Impotence compounding resentment. Eventually, rage will assert itself. Just a few decades before another French Revolution, the pressure cooker did explode. Armed with broom handles, printing press bars, and other tools of their trade, the painting apprentices launched their attack. But not against the bourgeois or their masters, the actual causes of their problems. Instead, the boys targeted cats. Not only did they hunt cats, the apprentices staged mock trials where they sentenced the cats and strung them up in improvised galas. It's a crazy, grotesque scene. And philosopher Slavoj Žižek writes that, quote, this cat massacre obviously served as an indirect attack on the master and his wife. It expressed the workers' hatred for the bourgeoisie. The masters love cats. Consequently, the workers hate them, end quote. Now, killing Parisian cats, it doesn't alleviate the plight of the apprentices. But that's not how divine violence works. The cats became scapegoats for an impotent rage, symbols for a system that they perceived had abandoned them and failed to deliver. And here's the thing that maybe makes it the hardest. None of it has to be true. In the case of the painting apprentices, they were actually beat down and left behind. But impotent rage can inflict any group, regardless of their status or socioeconomic position. Think back to 2016 and 2017. We saw the rage of white nationalist groups asserted in places like Virginia, But who filled and fills the ranks of these neo-Nazi white nationalist hate groups? Primarily, middle-class, educated white dudes. The most privileged and powerful demographic in the history of the world. And facts are just irrelevant when a group is sick with the contagion of impotent rage. And unless some dramatically disruptive response breaks the cycle the group will find a scapegoat to crucify. Like the apprentices in the 1730s, or like neo-Nazi groups in 2017, Egyptians are sick with the contagion and looking for a target. They hold all the power in Exodus chapter 1, but it is irrelevant because they feel left behind and beat down. But with the foreign dynasty gone... Who becomes the symbol for their resentment? Well, the easiest scapegoat of all. The other. The Israelites. We read what happens in literally one of the most tragic moments in human history. Exodus 1 verse 22 writes, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is to be born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. And naturally, as you read that, you shout, why? 
Why sacrifice the innocent on the altar of fear? But Rene Girard answers saying, quote, The crowd does not have a truly personal motive to lay blame on the victim it selects rather than on some other. It has no grievance. In a society that has fallen prey to anarchy, the voracious appetite for persecution feeds on victims indiscriminately as long as they are weak and vulnerable. The least pretext is enough. No one really cares about guilt or innocence of the victim. End quote. Divine violence devours everything in its path. The innocent, the young, and especially the weak. It never makes sense. It is never justified, and it never fixes the problem. Why do we do it? Catharsis. Because for a time, it alleviates the rage of the aggressor. What do we do with all of this? What tools do we have to use against impotent rage that is shaped by desire? A lot, actually. In fact, you could say that Jesus' whole mission is about getting to this issue. He comes into the world to absorb rage and violence into himself. He becomes the ultimate scapegoat, so that once all hate is played out, there might be spaces of grace and transformation. That something might actually disrupt the cycle. He gave the world a church to be an institution that is invited to live out that same kind of absorbing ethic, space-creating ethic. And he gave us his story, which creates in us a new set of desires, a new imagination for the world entirely. And that, well, that's something that might actually do something about this world. We'll explore this more later, but I think until we fundamentally take a look at what motivates this kind of rage, until we look at desire, we will always be dealing with symptoms and branches, never the root. We need to change the entire game that's being played. Because right now it feels like we changed the way we play it. We need to see that our world and our hope and our true flourishing is just different. We need to see it through the kingdom of Jesus. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the Gospel Collective. For more information about Missio and what we do, check out our website at missioslc.com. Hey, if you would, rate us on iTunes. It helps more people find the people's theology and get access to what it is that we're talking about and to join the conversation. And more than anything else, would you share this episode with a friend or a family member? Maybe even having political conversations or conversations about what the church is supposed to do in light of the world we live in. Hopefully this episode can be a resource for you in that. And then check back next week as we continue to walk through why our world feels the way that it does. But even more importantly, as we begin to explore in further depth what we can do about it. Thanks for listening.